I want to talk about defining moments. If you want to open your Bibles to Esther chapters 9 and 10. We're going to begin in chapter 9 as we conclude our study of this incredible Old Testament book, the book of Esther. Defining moments really do matter in life. Just this last Wednesday, we concluded a ministry budget year. That's a defining moment for us. And uh, from what we understand, we're close to being within 1% one way or the other when it comes to our income and expenses, which is right where we try to land. And uh, actually, we expected not to be quite there and uh, budgeted for some rainy day funds to be used, and yet God has provided in wonderful ways. And you hear more about that incredible story as Troy comes back in a couple weeks. After, we've got to pay all those little bills at the end and make sure as you close the books that we got a better understanding of where we are. But it looks like we're within 1%, which is so great in a in a, a budget that is so large, and uh, we're grateful for that. Also, uh, as we launch into this new ministry year starting on Thursday, September 1st, we're looking at this fall uh, a series of messages called Calvary Next that will be based in the book of Acts, but it will help us to uh, talk about the vision God has given our leaders. Now, we'd hope to have this series in the fall of 2020 as we concluded the 2020 vision, we thought it was going to be in the fall of 2020. Then we said, no, we'll do it in the spring of 2021. Then we said fall of 2021. Then we said spring of 2022. And praise God, it's coming now. The Lord just knew our leadership needed a little more time for this to stew. But our elders and our leaders have a, a great vision that we're going to share with you in a week, eight-week series starting two weeks from now called Calvary Next. And so you'll want to join us for that. And perhaps you haven't been able to join us yet. And if you are able, you haven't been able to join us on campus, this would be a great time to lean in. As a matter of fact, starting next weekend, kind of a prequel to those eight weeks, we'll have a couple of elders up here. We'll be talking about what God has for us moving forward. So really, these next nine weeks are going to be essential for us to learn from the book of Acts, to grow together, and to see what God has for us as we move forward to proclaim the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of weeks ago, together we celebrated the 60th wedding anniversary of our founding pastor, Larry DeWitt, and his wife, Becky. We had them up here, and you heard some of that story. This last Monday, our team, our staff team, had them in for a luncheon, and we brought in uh, members of the founding families of Calvary that were here when the church was started in 1976, 46 years ago, and um, we gathered together and had Larry and Becky and their family, and then we interviewed Larry and Becky. We wanted our team to hear the stories of God's faithfulness. It was so good to hear that. Uh, some on our team, Doug Lehman, and then one of those uh, foundational families, one of those members, uh, Cynthia Wimberg, uh, they saw that picture early on of Larry and Becky on the left there with the wedding cake, and they decided for that luncheon they were going to make a smaller but an exact replica of the original wedding cake. And so they did, but they, they even went on Etsy and found the, the exact same topper 60 years later, and uh, Larry and Becky, I think, were encouraged and blessed by that. We had a great time together. But when I looked at these two photos juxtaposed to each other, I thought, okay, here is one, August 17th, 1962. Here's one 60 years later of this dear couple to us, Larry and Becky DeWitt. And I thought, how many defining moments did they experience in those 60 years? How many defining moments in the twists and turns of life, their personal lives, their family life, their marriage, their ministry together, their career, if you will. And many of us face defining moments, 
periodically. Some of you may be facing one right now. You know it's this week or tomorrow, next week. It's a year from now. Some of you are in the midst of a defining moment, maybe because of the stuff happening in our culture. For some of you, it may be something going on in your family. Maybe it's career-oriented. But you are at a place where it's a defining moment. Remember, in this book of Esther, this orphan girl named Esther is raised by her cousin as her adoptive father, Mordecai. Through a strange and dangerous set of circumstances, she becomes the queen of the Persian Empire, the largest empire in the world up until that point in the fifth century BC. Here is this Jewish woman who becomes queen to Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world. And Xerxes is tricked by an evil man named Haman who is a bigot and an anti-Semite and he's tricked into making an edict that cannot be reversed in the law of the Medes and Persians, not even by Xerxes himself, that 11 months out, all the Jews are gonna be killed on one day by their neighbors and their neighbors can take all their stuff. And so this is hovering over the Jews and Mordecai recognizes that Esther is perhaps the only one who can help the Jews so they would not be annihilated from the face of planet Earth. And so he says to her at one point, a very simple statement in Esther 4.14. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? And who knows where you are in your life and your experience and the stuff you've gone through with the people you're with, all that you've come to in this moment that seems like God maybe has made a mistake or he's led you adrift. Who knows if in this very moment God has a defining moment for you where you are going to stand up and be counted for him. Perhaps you're alive at this moment in time with people around you today in the circumstances of your current life because God positioned you right now for such a time as this. It's a defining moment for you. And maybe many of you now feel the Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder saying, yeah, he's talking to you. That's that defining moment at work. That's the defining moment in your family. That's the defining moment with your health. That's the defining moment with your finances, that's a defining moment here in the culture. We're gonna be looking at Esther chapter nine, and remember, as we concluded chapter eight, there are two edicts now that are out there. There's the edict that Haman had tricked Xerxes into, and he had been exposed by Esther that, that all the Jews would be destroyed on March 7th, and Haman was executed by Xerxes for tricking him into destroying the Jewish people. But Xerxes couldn't take back that edict, so he gives Esther and Mordecai the power to make an edict. But what will they do? Well, they make an edict that says to all the Jews, if somebody threatens you on March 7th, you can kill them and take their stuff. So these two edicts are out there, and it looks like there could be all-out war, but Mordecai also is in a position of influence and power, and Esther is queen, and so people don't want to harm the Jews. And this is where we pick up in Esther chapter 9 and verse 1. So on March 7th, here we are, 11 months after the, die were, the dice were cast. So on March 7th, the two decrees of the king were put into effect. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but quite the opposite happened. It was the Jews who overpowered their enemies. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the king's provinces to attack anyone who tried to harm them. But no one could make a stand against them, for everyone was afraid of them. 
and all the nobles of all the provinces, the highest officers, the governors, and the royal officials helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai. For Mordecai had been promoted in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces as he became more and more powerful. Then in verses five uh, through 16, we get the story of what happens when the Jews are able to defend themselves and thousands are killed who had it in for the Jews and as they defend themselves, thousands of those throughout the empire. Remember, this is a large empire, a powerful empire. Reaches from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. And Mordecai now has great influence. And it's interesting to read, we read it three times, that when there are folks who are killed as the Jews defend themselves, in verse 9, in verse 15, in verse 16, it says, and they took no plunder. They were allowed to, but they didn't because they simply wanted to go as far as they needed to go to protect themselves. Remember, as a part of God's covenant to Abraham, he said, through your people, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There was a Messiah that was to come, and God had a covenant with his nation, Israel. He was being faithful to them so the Messiah would come, and even today we're blessed that Jesus did come through God's chosen people. If you drop down to verse 17, it says, this was done throughout the provinces on March 7th, and on March 8th they rested. So there was this defense of themselves on March 7th all over the kingdom. On the 8th they rested, celebrating their victory with a day of feasting and gladness. The Jews at Susa, which is the capital there where uh, uh, the palace is and Esther is and Xerxes is, the Jews at Susa killed their enemies on March 7th and again on March 8th. You read in the verses prior to that that we move past that Esther makes a request that it be extended because more of their enemies are revealed as the day comes to an end. And they rested on March 9th, making that their day of feasting and gladness. Then verse 20, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to the Jews near and far throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes, calling on them to celebrate an annual festival these two days. Then there's the story they're gonna celebrate. He told them to celebrate these days with feasting and gladness by giving gifts of food to each other and presents to the poor. This would be to commemorate a time when the Jews gained relief from their enemies and their sorrow was turned into gladness and their mourning into joy. There's gonna be a party. There's gonna be a celebration. So the Jews accepted Mordecai's proposal and adopted his, this annual custom. Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted to crush and destroy them on the date determined by the casting lots. The lots were called Purim. But when Esther came before the king, he issued a decree causing Haman's evil plot to backfire, and Haman and his sons were impaled on a sharp pole. That is why this celebration is called Purim, because it is the ancient word for casting lots. So because of Mordecai's letter and because of what they'd experienced, the Jews throughout the realm agreed to inaugurate this tradition and to pass it on to their descendants and to all who became Jews. They declared they would never fail to celebrate these two prescribed days at the appointed time each year. These days would be remembered and kept from generation to generation and celebrated by every family throughout the provinces and cities of the empire. The festival of Purim would never cease to be celebrated among the Jews, nor would the memory of what happened ever die out among their descendants. Then in the very short chapter, verse 10, we just get this little bit of record about Mordecai being raised up. And in verse three, we read, Mordecai the Jew became the prime minister with authority next to that of King Xerxes himself. He was very great among the Jews who held him in high esteem because he continued to work for the good of his people and to speak up for the welfare of all their descendants. 
Now, 10 years has passed in this book from when we opened the book until the time we read that Mordecai is lifted to this position that Haman once had. There's been this incredible reversal, this, this transition and change. Things were flipped upside down. Remember we talked about God is the God of turnaround stories, and here's the conclusion of that turnaround stories. Now, in, um, in chapter nine, there's a lot about celebrating and making this an annual celebration that mourning had been turned into gladness and sorrow into joy, and we need to celebrate, and it's this celebration, this feast is called Purim. It's still celebrated among God's people, the nation of Israel, Jewish people today. Jewish people still celebrate Purim. And I grew up in a Christian setting where we didn't celebrate Purim. Is anybody here, someone who grew up, you have some Jewish background and you grew up with the annual celebration of Purim? Would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand. There's a number of hands throughout the room, yes. And so you're familiar with this. Well, I'm not so familiar with this, but I wondered, how is it still being celebrated today? So I asked my friend, Louis Lapidus, who is a member here at Calvary and, and um, has served as a pastor of a congregation in Sherman Oaks. He served there a number of years, and that congregation had a messianic focus. And so I asked him, Louis, share with me some of the key parts of what Purim means today and what it reflects on and what is celebrated. And so he shared a few things I'd like to share with you. Uh, he said the purpose of Purim, it's to commemorate God's historical and present protection and preservation of the Jewish people. We saw that in Esther 9, 20 through 22. The events of Purim are an indication of God keeping his word to Abraham to make of his descendants a great nation. Haman's foiled plot to kill the Jewish people in Persia is a testimony of God's faithfulness to Israel. Then the authority of Purim, where does it come from? There are feasts and festivals given to us in the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, given to God's people, the nation of Israel, like Passover and Pentecost and those kinds of celebrations. But where does the authority for Purim come from? The feast was instituted by Esther and Mordecai, but Esther had the political clout to call for the feast, according to uh, chapter 9 again, starting there in verse 29. Purim is not one of the sacred seven festivals given to Israel in Leviticus. It's not one of those feasts, like the Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, Pentecost. It's a non-divine commanded celebration. But the Jewish queen of Persia instituted Purim, and it has stuck for over 2,400 years. The long reach of Purim, the preservation of the Jewish people in Persia in the face of Haman's satanic plot is more evidence of God preserving the people from whom the Messiah will come. Like God protected Israel from the persecution of the Greeks under Antiochus Epiphanes, and from that era we get the, the celebration of Hanukkah. To ensure the Messiah will come forth from Israel, the Purim story carries that same blessing. The focal point of the Jewish observation. Now this is, some of you who experienced Purim in, in the synagogue setting, you, you understand and get this. Uh, in synagogues and temples throughout the world, Jewish people gather to read the book of Esther. They read it aloud on Purim from the first chapter to the end. During the reading of Esther, the congregation will jeer, boo, or hiss at the mention of Haman. Maybe we should have done that all along through the whole series. Every time I said Haman's name, you could boo and hiss. And then um, they uh, not only would boo and hiss when Haman's name was mentioned, they would cheer at the mention of Esther and Mordecai. So they'd cheer and whistle and shout in celebration. Some observant Jews will write Haman's name in chalk on the bottom of their shoes and an attempt to erase or blot out his name through stomping of their feet when his name is read as the book of Esther is read aloud. Then there is the traditional food of Purim, 
A common treat during Purim is hamantashen, uh, which literally means Haman's pockets or ears. There are many explanations as to why the Jews eat these tri-cornered pastries on Purim. I've had one of these before, and they are delicious, right? These little tri-fold uh, uh, treats. And uh, from the name of this delicacy, some say the treat represents Haman's hat or ears, and the hat idea is that there are three pockets to uh, his hat, and so it looks like his hat. And then the fun connected with Purim. Purim is meant to be a holiday of feasting and gladness. Again, Esther 9, 17, and 18 emphasizes that. We just read that. One of the memories that Lewis records himself having, so he's writing in the first person, one of the memories I have as a Jewish child was attending temple wearing a costume of one of the characters connected with the Purim story. As the celebration of Purim evolved, the selection of costumes ranged from other biblical heroes to dressing as secular superheroes. I assume the intent is to bring attention to the courage of those who put others before themselves, like Esther and Mordecai put others before their own well-being. Then the final thing that Lewis shared with me that still continues in Purim, as we even saw here in Esther 9, verse 18, and in verse 22, is there's a generosity around Purim in this celebration each year in March. Jewish celebrants are obliged, according to Mordecai and Esther's edict, to send gifts of food to family members and gifts of money to the poor. So there's a generosity because God has been good to us. We're going to be good toward others in this great celebration. That's the, the, the continuation of Purim. That's the celebration of the story of Esther and how God used Esther to protect and preserve his people. I want to share with you from the book of Esther, and some of this comes right out of chapters 9 and 10, but some of it comes through the whole story as we conclude this five-week series on this wonderful book. I want to share with you five tools you'll need for such a time as this. If you're in a defining moment, you're at a place right now where you have to take a stand, you have to speak up, you have to, uh, to assert yourself in some setting, or you have to take that posture that, that is a complica complicated one to take because of the variables and the people in your life, I think these tools will help you for this defining moment for such a time as this. Number one, a clear sense of purpose is the first tool. A clear sense of purpose shaped by a deep compassion for others. There's purpose. Esther knows her purpose. It's to save her people. But it's not just to save herself or her family. It's to save her people. And so she's really clear when she makes that request to King Xerxes. She says, I make a request and I make a petition, a request for my life, but I make a petition for all of my people that you would do something to stop this annihilation that's coming under an edict you've been tricked into. So she has this deep sense of purpose. But at the same time, it's about the people who are going to be destroyed, and she has a compassion for them. Even though maybe she could plead as his wife to be the only one who survives, she has compassion for others. What an interesting combination. I've met people who are very purpose-driven. They're very goal-oriented. They get the task done. They know what they're going to do, and they're like a dog with a bone. They're not going to let go. They're going to persevere. But I've met people like that who are jerks <laughs> because they do it in such a way that they leave awake with human beings. They hurt people. They hurt the people they care about. But in her case, she had purpose that was shaped by compassion for others. And the Old Testament talks about loving our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus repeats that concept that we're to have compassion for the people around us. So it's an interesting combination of 
purpose and compassion. Oswald Chambers said, I must learn the purpose of my life belongs to God, not me. If you thought about what you were born to do, what you're born to accomplish, if you thought about what your purpose is as a follower of Christ, once you understand that the purpose of your life is actually determined by God, not by you, life gets a lot easier. There's a lot more peace and satisfaction in life. But there's also this idea of caring about the people around us with compassion. The great philosopher Mr. Rogers said there are three ways to ultimate success. Three ways to ultimate success. Number one, the first way is to be kind. The second way is to be kind. The third way is to be kind. And it's unique that Esther in this story has this driving sense of purpose, but it's because she has compassion for her people. What does that mean for us? See people through God's eyes. See people through God's eyes, not your eyes. Notice their sin, but point them to their Savior. Jesus himself in John 3, as he's describing his mission, he says, the Son of Man, I didn't come here to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. I didn't come here to point out sin. People who are in sin have broken lives, and it makes complications, and they feel that agony. They know they are not perfect people. They know they sin. But he said, I came not to condemn, but I came to save then he would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That great verse, John 3, 16, in that same context. And there are a lot of us who love to run around and point out the sin in the world and the drifting of the values. And at times I, I look at our world and I go, my goodness, either I'm getting old or the world has gone mad. And I think maybe, I, maybe I've lived too long or I should have been born. But then on the other side of it, I step back and I go, Wow, what wonderful opportunities to point people who are deeply in the dark to the one who is the light, to our Savior, Jesus. Notice the sin, but point them to the Savior. The solution is Jesus. If you're in that moment, a defining moment, you feel like you're at a, for such a time as this moment, you're gonna need a clear sense of purpose shaped by a deep compassion for others. Secondly, you're gonna need a true sense of urgency tempered with plenty of patience. There is an urgency here. You say, well, they had 11 months. Yeah, but their neighbors are plotting and planning. They're getting ready for this thing. And every day it gets harder for these families as the deadline is coming. The casting of the dice, the Purim, uh, has determined this date and, and there is this sense of urgency. We've got to figure a way to save God's people. You sense that from Mordecai at the end of chapter four as he pleads with Esther, you may be in such a, a position for such a time as this. That's why you've been raised up to be queen. There's a sense of urgency. And then you remember, though, she says to him, well, you go away and fast, and I'll fast, and we'll see what God has, and after I fasted a few days, I'll go into the king. And she said, you know, if I go in uninvited and I speak up uninvited, he could kill me. I don't know that many of us here are in that position in our defining moment, but she's willing, she says, if I must die, I must die. But she says, let's, let's take three days to fast and get some focus before God. And then when she's asked what she wants, she says, come to a dinner and bring Haman. So the king and Haman are having dinner with her. And he says, the king says, what do you want, Esther? I'll give you anything you want. And remember, it looks like she stumbles and yet she's in tune with God. And she says, you know what? Come back tomorrow and I'll ask you. You two come back for dinner tomorrow. And you remember how much occurred? Go back to chapters five and six. How much occurred overnight? 
what God was doing sovereignly behind the scenes? So what we, we could look at just humanly as a stumble is this moment of patience on her part in this season of urgency. Our God has an urgency that all would come to be saved, Peter tells us. But he goes on to say that God is patient. He's not bringing the end of the world and judgment and the new heavens and the new earth and the return of Christ yet because the call, whosoever will may come, is still going out. If you've heard the good news of Jesus from this platform or maybe from a friend, yes, indeed, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Nothing can rescue you, not your good works. Nothing can rescue you other than what Jesus did on the cross for you, what he did in his burial and his resurrection for you. It's the only way to salvation. That's the good news God offers. Maybe you've heard that. You've been here week after week, and you hear me each week say that and talk about that, or maybe you've got a friend who's talked to you about that. Can I just say that the scriptures are really clear, that God is being patient, but you don't want to wait. The Apostle Paul, quoting part of the Old Testament, says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, For God says, at just the right time I heard you, on the day of salvation I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Then Paul adds this to the readers at Corinth. Today is the day of salvation. Can I say to those of you who have heard that good news but haven't responded, today is the day of salvation. Today, cross that line of faith and commit your life to Jesus Christ. Embrace him as your savior. As I mentioned to you, our care and prayer team hangs out after the services down here to meet you and pray with you regarding any burden or need you have. You can see them to discuss this or celebrate with them that today you accepted Christ. Normally I'm in the lobby, but today I'll be going to the Welcome to Calvary reception. We invite anybody who's been around Calvary and you haven't really leaned in, whether you've been here years or this is your first weekend with us, first service here you've ever been with us, right across the hall to room 1100, we're gonna have that brief little Welcome to Calvary reception, invite you to come. I'm gonna move right into that reception after the service. Normally I'm in the lobby, but Pastor Steve Day, our care pastor, will be there in the lobby in the place I normally stand. That works out really great because I point most of you to him as our care pastor, so we're just cutting out the middleman. He'll be right there ready to even celebrate with you or answer questions about what it means that today is the day of salvation. For those of us who are followers of Christ already, we, we need to understand there is a sense of urgency in how we live and love like Jesus in this world, but it needs to be tempered with plenty of patience. What does it mean for us? Wait for God's timing. Wait for God's timing. Don't force anything and don't drag your feet. I've been in many situations in my personal life and in my ministry life where, where you have to be in tune with God and, and understand how God wants you to move and be able to listen to his spirit moving you forward. I became a senior pastor at age 29. The church was fairly sizable, one of the largest churches in the Appalachian region and, and at school and multiple staff. And I became pastor and I, I didn't know a lot and I was learning to lead and teach in that kind of setting. And I remember a couple of years in, we were growing and we had gotten a consultant who said we needed to build some buildings to sharpen our tools and reorganize our campus and things were going as people were coming to Jesus and I had a front row seat to that. And we got ourselves into a capital campaign. We had architectural drawings. We'd met with our neighbors. We'd gone to the city council. They first rejected us. We went back again. And now things are going great. And we hit the summertime. And you, you know, I'm preaching through the book of Nehemiah. And if you've been around church for a while, when you want to do something big, you pe preach through the book of Nehemiah. It's how to lead through you know, the, the building of something, the accomplishment of something. We were right in the middle of it. And I went away on vacation for two weeks. 
The first day on vacation, I just sensed the Lord saying, you know this whole thing we're doing with raising money, this, we called it the $6 million plan. You've heard of the $6 million man? It was a $6 million plan that was gonna take place over like 10 years to just totally redo our campus and make it a, a, a much sharper campus to be able to reach the folks of the greater Charleston, West Virginia area through our ministry there at Bible Center. And the Lord just started saying, I think you need to pause. I'm like, oh Lord, we're, <laughs> could you have said that about three months ago? I'm, I'm like 31 or 32 here, and Lord, uh, this is going to make me look foolish that I've led us this far. And, and all during those two weeks, he said, I think you need to slow down and pause. Maybe you need to head a different direction. I was like, uh, Lord, I, I don't know. Came back from vacation. The first Sunday I was preaching, one of the elders came up to me afterwards. He said, hey, um, just so you know, I've been sent to talk to you from the elders. You see, we met while you were on vacation. Now, let me tell you something. They teach you in seminary. When the elders meet while you're on vacation without you, that's not a good thing. <laughs> that is not a good thing. And so I'm thinking, oh, man. And he said, matter of fact, it's so important. We want to meet with you tonight. I thought, oh, oh, man. And so we met, and they started talking, and I interacted. And all of a sudden, at this, almost the same time, we both said, from the elder board and me just interacting, we said to one another, we think God's calling on us to pause, but yet we were growing and we had no room for the children and the students that God was bringing our way and the people were getting saved and, and yet God said to pause. Now what was really interesting is I hadn't really thought about what the next sermon was gonna be yet, hadn't really looked at the next passage and I opened up Nehemiah and the next passage was how Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem paused the building of the city walls and God had his timing in that. But there was this sense of urgency. We needed to keep moving forward. We had invested so much in raising dollars and everything, and yet God worked in our hearts and said, yeah, you got a sense of urgency, and the urgency is important, but it's got to be tempered with patience. Thank God we did that, and we were able to relocate to a new campus, and God allowed us to continue to grow, and they continue to grow and thrive and minister in that community. And God taught me a vital lesson. Don't force anything, and don't drag your feet Stay in tune with God and wait for his timing. It's not always easy. Thirdly, the third tool you need for such a time as this is a rare sense of boldness saturated with a whole lot of humility. This woman has boldness because she even says to Mordecai before those three days of fasting where then she says, I'll go in, she knows that if you go in uninvited to a Persian king, unless he extends his royal scepter, you're dead. So she says, I'll go in, and if I die, I die. And then she says... Later in her boldness, in that second banquet with Haman and Xerxes, the king, she, she says, it's Haman who's gonna kill my people. He's the bigot, he's the racist, he's the problem, he's the one who tricked you. She had boldness, but it was saturated with a whole lot of humility. She, she wanted to slow down and fast. She wanted to make sure the timing is right, but there's a humble spirit on her part. And again, I've met people with a sense of purpose and they can have all kind of boldness, but they can be real jerks. If they don't have humility, the humility that Christ has. Second Chronicles 16, nine says, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is looking for the people who've committed their hearts to him to give them courage and boldness and strength in their defining moments. So what do we do? You ask God for the courage to act. What do you think she did during that time of fasting? She just held up her hands and said, God, I'm gonna need courage in this. 
I, I need strength. Make sure your boldness comes from him, not you. One of the great struggles of my, uh, my ministry time has, has been to know when it's just me in my flesh trying to act or when it is God in his strength and his courage with the presence of the Holy Spirit in me causing me to act. And I want to be moving when the Spirit's moving. I don't want to be moving when my flesh is moving. Because true boldness in whatever situation in our culture, in our lives, in our relationships, in the tough places of life, true boldness has to be saturated with a whole lot of humility. And humility comes when we know it's of God, not of us. You may be familiar with a boat that was used in World War II to land on beaches, both in the European and Pacific arenas. These boats, uh, simply called LCVP boats were able to come close to shore and unload troops who could then wade into shore. Uh, these images are famous uh, from World War II, particularly the images come from D-Day or any movie you've seen around D-Day, the storming of the beaches of Normandy on that important day. These boats are also referred to as Higgins boats. As there was a uh, the inventor of these boats was a boat builder named Andrew Jackson Higgins, who for a couple of decades had been trying to convince the U.S. Army and the U.S. military, the Navy, that these boats, if, if they would take these boats he'd invented, they would be critical in the next wars the nation would face. Finally, in the late 1930s, the military started listening to him, and they bought a whole bunch of these, and they became super important because they couldn't go to ports that were heavily fortified, but these boats could land on beaches anywhere without a port, without a pier, without a landing area, and unload troops, and it changed the trajectory of World War II. As a matter of fact, President Dwight Eisenhower, 20 years after the war, looking back, just making some comments to the author Stephen Ambrose, said, Higgins is the man who won the war for us. And he said he was a humble man, but he had a boldness to keep pressing the military. And finally, when the military bought these boats, they became a vital tool in the victory in World War II in both arenas. There was a boldness and a humility that Higgins demonstrated that was noted by the general and then later president, Dwight Eisenhower. We need to have a boldness that is mixed with humility so that as we move and as we act and as we take that step in that defining moment for such a time as this, it's God, not us, that is in the move. Fourthly, there is a need for a sweet sense of surrender undergirded by a very simple faith. There's a need. We, need. we need this tool of a sweet sense of surrender. We surrender all, our hearts, our minds, our relationship, our bodies, our dreams, our failures. We surrender it all to God. And then it's undergirded with a simple faith. We surrender it all and we say, I trust you. You've got me. I rest in you. I trust you. 1 Corinthians 16 uh, three, 13 and 14 says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. When you surrender to God, then you have this simple faith, okay, God, you remember that God's got you. Remember, God's got you. No matter what happens, you are always safe in Christ. We just sang about that in Firm Foundation, that beautiful new song we sang. When our, our feet are planted on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, as we sang, 
He will see us through. He will see us through. We're safe in Christ. We just need to take that step of surrendering it all and then trusting God. Deal Moody said, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. Have you surrendered all to Jesus? So I was thinking about this. The Lord kind of brought this thought to my mind. Growing closer to God has nothing to do with trying harder and everything to do with surrendering more. Esther didn't try harder. She surrendered more. That's the pattern of her life as, as you see it unfold in this book and as who she was in this defining moment. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been saying to you, yeah, you're in a defining moment right now. Yeah, you, you've been put in this situation with these people and the circumstances and the story of your life for this moment. You're gonna need to be surrendered in this moment. Can I encourage you this week if you're in that position or maybe you, you know there's one coming just to take that, that thing, that, that defining moment, that such a time as this and say, God, it's yours. I surrender everything to you and I trust you through it no matter what. I'm gonna move. I'm gonna do what you tell me to do. I'm gonna be bold. I'm gonna take this step of faith. But I even surrender that moment to you, God. Just talk to him this week and surrender that to him. Whatever that defining moment, that, that thing you're wrestling with, that position you're in right now, Remember God's got you. No matter what happens, you're always safe in Christ. A sweet sense of surrender undergirded by a very simple faith. Fifth and finally is the tool of a deep sense of satisfaction cultivated by an attitude of gratitude. You read chapter nine, it keeps saying they're gonna celebrate in the cities and in the rural areas, and they're gonna celebrate, and they're gonna celebrate God's goodness and how he turned mourning into gladness. You go back to chapter nine, there's just this kind of repetitive nature about celebration, celebration, and they took this, this wording, the ancient wording for the Purim that means casting lots and, and the roll of the dice, and, and it was a part of a celebration that they said, we're never gonna forget God's faithfulness. We're gonna be grateful so we need a deep sense of satisfaction. Where does that satisfaction come from? An attitude of gratitude. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, many of us have heard that verse, but many of us, the way we live it is, give thanks in some circumstances. Give thanks in the circumstances I like or agree with, but I'm not gonna do that in the things that are challenging or tough. But if you wanna be ready for that defining moment, you have to cultivate an attitude of gratitude saying, okay, God, thank you. Can you imagine Esther at the end of this book after these 10 years? She's been queen in this book for about six or seven years of the book. Remember, she went through a whole year prior to that where she was in the harem. Can you imagine? She looks back and she goes, wait a minute, I was orphaned. Wait a minute, Mordecai raised me. Wait a minute, I was in that 12-month program that was just a cruel, and then I'm chosen over other women to be the queen, and those other women, it could have been me, those other 399 women are gonna be a part of his harem that anybody he says can use and abuse them, and I went through all of that, and, and then he, Haman tricks Xerxes, and my people were gonna be annihilated, and I'm sitting there as queen, and all that that looks so messy, I could have been grateful in all of that period because God's got me. There's a deep sense of satisfaction that comes when we cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Celebrate all that God does. Learn to thank God for everything. Don't just list your blessings, list your problems, and then take that list of problems and go, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. Why? Because he's using those things sovereignly according to his providence to accomplish in you his perfect 
plans and purposes. And we can be grateful that we're a part of what God is doing as his children. Perhaps you're alive at this moment in time with the people around you today and the circumstances of your current life because God positioned you right now for such a time as this. Are you ready for God's next such a time as this moment in your life? Do you have that sense of purpose and urgency and boldness and surrender and satisfaction? Are all of those things marked by compassion and patience, humility, faith, and gratitude? This is critical for us in this defining moment we're in in life. In 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give her seat on a bus to a white man, and in doing so, she turned the world upside down, started a conversation and a lot of conflict around race and how we treat people, and while we still wrestle with those same issues, we've come a long way because of Rosa Parks and her willingness to have in her such a time and moment, a posture that said, this is the moment, this is the moment. As a matter of fact, Rosa Parks would write in her book, Quiet Strength, about that moment and how she believed God was in that moment. She wrote, when I sat down on the bus that day, I had no idea history was being made. I was only thinking of getting home, but I had made up my mind after so many years of being a victim of the mistreatment of my my people suffered, not giving up my seat, and whatever I had to face afterwards was not important. I did not feel any fear sitting there. I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever I had to face. It was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, sit down, so I refused to move. What is it God is doing in your life to say this is your defining moment or a defining moment? What is your, for such a time as this moment right now you're in? Give it to God. And make sure you have the right tools, like we've seen in the life of Esther, the right tools for this moment. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for the story of Esther. Lord, thank you for the reversals. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you how when things look like they're going one way, you can intervene and they can go the other way that you're weaving what you are seeking to accomplish according to your purpose. Be glorified in and through us in all that we do. And I pray for those in defining moments right now. May they give that moment to you. May you meet them in that moment. And Father, may they be willing to go in where they're not invited, to speak up when everyone else tells them to be quiet or to wait when maybe they need to move and move when maybe others say wait. I pray that you would give them the wisdom in these defining moments to move with you and to take that next right step. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.